Shavuot Tov, everyone. Thank you, Rabbi Solish. Thank you all for uh, inviting me here. Um, how many of you saw articles about this? The news that Sophia the robot was granted citizenship in Saudi Arabia. How many of you were surprised by that? And not because she has more rights than most women in Saudi Arabia, but simply because a robot is being granted rights and a robot is being treated like a human being. And yet, some of you may have made the connection that this doesn't seem so far off from something that we have developed deep in our own tradition, which is the story of the golem. How many of you are familiar with the story of the golem of Prague? Okay, we'll come back to that shortly. But first, I want to give you a little bit of a background from an American law perspective, because before we talk about the specifics that Jewish law is going to graft on, let's first figure out, could this happen here in America? Is it just Saudi Arabia and a publicity stunt? Or could it actually happen that in a few years, we will be dealing with robotic citizens in the United States? So let's start with some definitions. Lawyers like definitions. It gives us a ground to work from. What is legal personhood? Well, legal personhood actually has nothing to do with humanity. We're all familiar with the idea of a corporate person. Great, so nothing to do with living, breathing humanity. A person can be not alive. The short answer is that to be a person, you have to be able to sue and be sued. If you can sue and be sued, then you are a person. If you want a more specific definition, it's that for a thing to be a holder of legal rights, which is personhood, the following criteria must be satisfied. Institute legal actions at its behest. In determining the granting of legal relief, the courts must take injury to it into account, and the relief must run to the benefit of it. In short, it has to be able to sue and be sued. Okay, now let's get some definitions on the other side of the spectrum. What exactly is artificial intelligence when we talk about the idea of robotic personhood? And it depends who you ask. Right, from an engineering perspective, one of the accepted definitions is that AI, artificial intelligence, is the science of making machines do things that would require intelligence if done by men, sort of a counter uh, definition. From a cognitive science perspective, it's a science of designing and building systems that work the way the human mind works. And we're going to be very, very brief on some of these definitions, and I'm certainly going to be uh, oversimplifying things. But for our purposes, we can discuss two different kinds of artificial intelligence, strong artificial intelligence and weak artificial intelligence. Strong AI says the following. Computers are capable of true intelligence. What humans perceive of as consciousness is really just a complicated but ultimately predictable program. With sufficient technology, we could build a mind. Okay, we're not there yet, but if we had enough supercomputers, we could actually develop consciousness. Weak AI says, no, you're looking at the problem wrong. Even if machines appear intelligent, they're only and always will be only actually simulating intelligence. They'll never be aware of what they are doing. Okay, so how would this work in an actual example? Strong AI would say, we want to fly. Let's copy birds. Let's get feathers and wings and build a strong enough propulsion system just the way that they do. Weak AI says, no, we want to fly. Let's build a plane. Let's look at the system of aerodynamics that birds use to get liftoff and see if we can translate that into a more human way of doing things. Strong AI thinks we can fully reproduce intelligence. Weak AI thinks we can get results. Notably, weak AI works. Okay, And most of the systems that we're talking about are weak artificial intelligence. Now, Alan Turing famously believed in strong AI, but he believed in a result-oriented strong AI. He said the only way to really test 
strong AI is to see if anyone can tell the difference. Otherwise, who cares? And so he had a black box approach to the problem, which basically came down to the following. It doesn't matter how it works. If it looks like a human and behaves like a human, then it is considered human intelligence. Now, Searle's famous response was, that's still weak AI. The system doesn't actually understand anything. You're still only simulating thought, even if you can trick somebody else into thinking it. Even if there's no practical difference, don't think that you've solved the AI problem. It's interesting, from a religious perspective, this has a lot of um, interesting foundational importance. Nicholas of Cusa, who was not only an astronomer but a theologian, once famously talked about the idea of approximation versus identification. And I'll read you what he said, because it's a fascinating from a religious perspective that we're going to talk tonight about how Jewish law deals with these issues. And so we should just take a step back and see the following. Whatever is not truth cannot measure truth precisely. By comparison, a non-circle cannot measure a circle whose being is something indivisible. Hence, the intellect, which is not truth, never comprehends truth so precisely that truth cannot be apprehended infinitely more precisely. Sorry? For the intellect is to truth as an inscribed polygon is to the inscribing circle. If you take a look at a circle, right? A circle has no edges. It's perfect. And you start drawing a square in it. The square doesn't really approximate the circle. So you draw more and more sides. You draw a pentagon. You draw you go all these sides until you have a shape inside that has a million edges, and it starts to really look like and approximate the circle. On the one hand, you look at it and say, aha, we've gotten closer to approximating the circle. But Nicholas of Cusa points out you've actually gotten further away. You started with a square that had four circles, and the more that you approach the circle with more and more infinite edges, the more you realize you could never get to the circle. What's taking you a billion edges to get close? God did it with no edges. And so that's an interesting perspective. When we talk about developing intelligence, the closer we get to the mind of God, the further away we become, which is really sort of a, a precursor to what weak AI is. We might approximate it, but the closer we get, the we realize that God made these supercomputers with nothing. And it's unbelievable the something from nothing aspect. OK, just a, a short introduction. Now, let me ask you a legal question, right? Intent is extremely important any time you're dealing with the law. How do you ever know if someone ever intends to do something? How do you know what's in somebody else's mind? Any thoughts? By asking. OK, but you don't know. The person's always going to say, I didn't intend to steal. You can only tell by action. By, action. by actions. Go ahead. They said in advance. Okay. Actions in any form, writing, speaking, okay. any sort of action. Well, now I said actions too, but now I'm taking it back. Because what happens if something happens that's involuntarily? Good. Other thoughts? Motive. Sorry? Circumstance and motive. How do you tell motive? Circumstance. Circumstance, okay. What about predictability? Let's. Stop for a second and ask ourselves this. What exactly is consciousness? When we talk about human consciousness and whether or not we can recreate it, let's stop and ask ourselves, what exactly do we mean by consciousness? Aware of our existence. According to who? How do I know what anyone else is ever aware of? It's sort of the same question as how to know what you're intending. For all I know, you're all a figment of my imagination, <coughs> right? And maybe I'm a figment of yours. It's very hard to know somebody else's mind. And when we talk about consciousness, we need to have a legal definition. If we're going to build legal personhood that perhaps has legal consciousness, we need to first know what exactly, what is the baseline definition that we're trying to get to. And so Daniel Dennett, who's a philosopher, says, listen, there's nothing magical 
about human consciousness or the way we attribute intentions to people. We just revert to ease of explanation. There are actually three levels of abstraction that you can deal with when you're talking about intent. Physical stance, design stance, and intentional stance. When I'm looking at another object and I wanted to see what's going on, I can talk about the physical stance, I can, meaning I can describe it by applying the laws of physics, and I can make predictions from knowledge of the physical constitution of the system and the physical laws that govern its operation. So for example, I can say when I drop a stone, gravity says it will fall, and I can predict it using physicality. Or I can say a design stance approach. If I want to explain to you how an alarm clock works, right? I could tell you about the physics involved, but that would take a very long time. It also wouldn't really help you in terms of trying to predict its behavior. Much easier if I just explain it by reference to the design. If you press these buttons in this way, at this time it will ring. And I can rely on that prediction because I explained to you how the design works. And then one more abstraction is intentional stance. Consider, if you will, a very common computer program, right? Which is the simplest thing that a robotic mind would have to do. A computer that plays chess, right? And I'm trying to predict the computer's next move. If I try to describe the physical stance of how this computer works, it would take me years. I'd have to describe to you how the electrical impulses work with every single one, zero, 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 one. It'll take years and it won't do much good. Even if I explain it to you, it'll be hard to predict what's going to happen next. I could talk about the design. And I can say, here's two million lines of code. Here's how it's designed. And if you figure all that out, you'll know what the next move might be. Or I can take a step back and say, listen, I can describe to you as what the computer intends to do, an intentional system. I can say, the computer knows the rules and wants to win, and it's going to make the best move that it thinks will help it win. And that's kind of what we actually use in daily conversation. We talk about things in terms of intent. We talk about this when it comes to people, right? We don't sit and talk about how the human mind makes decisions. We say, he picked up the object from the store without paying and left because he intended to steal it. I didn't talk about the physical stance of how his body picked it up. I don't talk about the design stance of how his arm moved. I talk about it from the intentional stance of what I can see and what looked predictable. We do this with robots as well already. All of us do it, right? When you use eBay, when you use Amazon, you talk about the agent, you say the agent asked me for my credit card number and security code because it wanted to verify my purchase. Whether that was a human agent or Amazon's bot agent, it asked you for it. Why did it mean, what do you mean it asked you for it? There was a bunch of electrical impulses on the physical design stands. There were two billion lines of code. But what you say is, it asked me for something because it wanted. So we already attribute, the same way we attribute consciousness and intentionality to a human being, we all attribute in our daily lives to computer programs the idea of intentionality. Which, by the way, is how the law works. Lauren Sullivan, professor at Harvard, once asked the following hypothetical. Suppose we have an AI that claims to be conscious and that files an action for emancipation on the 13th Amendment to the Constitution. Imagine that the owner's attorney argues that the AI lacks consciousness, and therefore it's not a person. The AI takes a stand and testifies, no, I am conscious. The owner's lawyer argues the AI is only a machine. It cannot be aware of what's happening to it. The AI's lawyer counters, there's very good evidence that the AI is aware. It acts like a person, it talks like a person. In response, the owner's lawyer argues that the AI only gives the appearance of consciousness, but appearances can be deceiving. It's really a zombie, an unconscious machine that only acts like it's aware. The AI's counsel rebuts with the contention that the doubt about the AI's consciousness is at the bottom no different than the doubt about the consciousness of one's own neighbor. You know as much about the inner workings of the AI as you do about the next person's mind. You can't get into your neighbor 
neighbor's head and prove that she is not really a zombie feigning consciousness. One can only infer consciousness from behavior and self-reports, since one lacks direct access to others' minds. How should the legal system deal with this question? It's certainly possible to imagine the dispute coming out either way. So you can certainly see easily how we might answer the question in terms of there being not only personhood, suing and be suing, but intentionality. And once you get there, already in the 80s, people open the following question. If it's possible that they are conscious, isn't it sad and dangerous to take away the ability for them to be a person? Rosalind Hursthaus put it this way, speciesism is just like racism. <laughs> Racists think that, for instance, the death or enslavement of someone of their own race matters, but that the death or enslavement of someone of a different race does not. Despite the fact that a difference in skin color does not make for a difference in how much one wants to live or be free, or how worthwhile one's life might be, or anything else relevant, similarly, a speciesist thinks that the death or enslavement of a member of their own species matters, but the death or enslavement of a member of a different species does not matter, despite the imagined fact that the difference in species did not make for a difference in how much the two beings want to live or be free, or how worthwhile their lives might be. Hilary Putnam put it even more succinctly. If we are to make a decision, it seems preferable to me, this is 1964, to extend our concept so that robots are conscious for discrimination based on the softness or hardness of the body, parts of a synthetic organism seems as silly as discriminatory treatment of humans on the basis of skin color. Why in the world should it make a difference if your skin is made out of metal or not if you look sound and act conscious? If you're talking and acting and being and living, why should it matter what you're made out of? Okay. So we should stop right here and ask a very important question. We're saying all these things. How far are we along? How much do robots actually already resemble what we do and don't do? What is the space between science fiction and science, particularly when we talk about um, robots? I don't know if we have time to do all this. We don't. So I'm not going to play the whole thing. But if you're curious afterwards, Google this. Nike football, the last game. It was a commercial that ran during the last World Cup. And in this commercial, anyone see it? Okay. In the commercial, it was about how these robots came and took over the World Cup games, and they had to gather all the best humans in the world to beat them, and they finally did, and it was a wonderful, happy thing. Robots can't play soccer, right? And they certainly can't play soccer at a world level, except that they can. And already since 1995, they've been having the, every single year, the World Robotic Championships. And if you want to play this video, it's also a little too long. It started out, the robots in 1995 were on all fours playing with a miniature ball. Now, 20 years later, they're standing up, they're walking around. They predict that by 2050, which is, again, not a million years from now, very, very soon, by 2050, this commercial won't be science fiction. These robots will undoubtedly beat the human beings, and you're not going to gather all the best humans and beat them. They're just going to win every single game. Okay, So we're heading pretty much in that direction. This was an earlier version of what the game looked like. You can tell, again, they're already making a lot of progress um, towards that 2050 goal. Okay, so now, the point is that robots do learn things very quickly. And every single time we set a line saying robots can do that, within three years robots can do that. And we're back at trying to figure out what exactly that line is that robots can do. Here are things that artificial agents already do. They recommend products and services to us. They facilitate online uh, commerce. They do financial trading, right? Goldman Sachs is Sigma X is a robot. Credit Suisse's Gorilla is a robot. They terminate and renew Medicaid. They make governmental decisions. Bots make important decisions about people's lives. They decide on food stamps and other welfare benefits. 
judges use them when they assist in judicial decision-making and sentencing. Yes, bots make decisions about how long somebody goes to jail for. They do network management, they schedule planning, they do hundreds of other things, whether it's on your phone or at the government or in some important computer systems. They make decisions about war, they make decisions about life and death. Okay, now, take a step back for a second in a non-robot example. Again, just to confirm, we all assume that non-humans can be legal persons who have intentionality. So when a corporate act is consistent with an established corporate policy, we say the following. Exxon bought the oil field because it believed that it would increase profits and its policy, its policy is to make such purposes where the projected rate of return on investment exceeds 15%. Okay, who did it? We don't say a person did it, we say Exxon did it. This legal person has <coughs> intent because we can ascribe rational behavior based on Daniel Dennett's intentional stance. Okay? And it's desirable for corporate reasons as caused by a corporate belief coupled with a corporate desire and thus as a result of corporate intentionality. It's a behavioral explanation. Now, when you look at the law of agency, and again, I'm oversimplifying things for a little bit, but agency in the law is a fiduciary relationship that arises when one person, a principal, manifests assent to another person, an agent, that the agent shall act on the principal's behalf and subject to the principal's control, and the agent manifests assent or otherwise consents so to act. We all use robotic agents all the time. Anytime you set any kind of alert on the computer, that's you using a robotic agent asking you to act asking it to act on your intent. Now you might say, well, the agent doesn't really have any authority, it's not a real person. Guess what, the law knows that. And the law says apparent authority counts as well. Apparent authority is the power held by an agent or other actor to affect a principal's legal relations with third parties when a third party reasonably believes the actor has authority to act on behalf of the principal. How many of you ever gotten a call and you weren't sure if it was a robot or not? That's apparent authority. It's sometimes the robots lie, actually. And if you go on YouTube, there's a whole cottage industry you can see of robots lying to people on the phone. I'm not a robot. No, of course not. They are robots. Georgia Tech actually has a lab where they teach robots to lie. It's a very fascinating lab. Um, the point is that when the robot says that it has authority, legally, that's apparent authority. And if a third party acts with the reasonable justification that, in fact, the robot said I should, that would count as actual authority. And by the way, in law already, the courts have started to recognize that a non-human person can be an agent. We perceive no legal significance in the difference between an operator who has been quote-unquote programmed, because when you train an operator, what are you doing? You're programming them. Whether they're a person or they're not a person, that's exactly what programming is. To perform certain actions upon receipt of specified input from a customer, and an electric device programmed to perform those same functions upon receipt of similarly specified input from that customer. And it extends this idea of agency to people. Now, why is that important for us? Because if a robot can be an agent, then it can enter into contracts. And now we start developing the idea of robots entering other fields of law. If it can be an agent, it can bind you to a contract. Okay, a contract has, strictly speaking, nothing to do with the personal or individual intent of the parties. A contract is an obligation attached by the mere force of law to certain acts of the parties, usually words, which ordinarily accompany and represent a known intent. 
If, however, it were proved by 20 bishops that either party, when he used the words, intended something else than the usual meaning which the law imposes upon them, he would still be held, unless there was some mutual mistake or something else of the sort. So the bottom line is, intent doesn't really matter in contract. The words that you use or that your agent use matter. So it turns out that robots not only can they, in fact, and become agents, in theory, it's a very easy step to say that they can enter into contracts. The robot responds to a program that's already made, right? So the robot can be an agent because it wouldn't it wouldn't change whatever it has to do. That would be one level, right? Sure, but there are also, we're not going to have time to talk so much, there are also autonomous agents, right? So robots now have deep learning algorithms where they actually pick up new things. So you can have two robots that are programmed the exact same way and they leave the room and they have different life experiences and they come back different because they learn from their environment. In fact, very similar to how children learn from their environment. And so the question then becomes, who do you attribute that to? Right, from a legal perspective, we say that all children's actions are attributable to their parents because they were programmed that way and everything they picked up was based on that early programming. Or do we say at some point, no, when you walk out into the world and you develop life experience, you make decisions based on that, that's a completely different idea. And you can tell this if in the driverless car world, with a very easy example called the platypus problem. Imagine that you have two driverless cars that are both programmed exactly correctly. And the programmer is pretty thorough. He types into the program and says, if you see a chicken swerve out of the way, if you see a duck swerve out of the way. He did not think to put, if you see a platypus, swerve out of the way. Now these two robotic cars are driving and they've had different life experiences. They've both driven a million miles. They've seen a lot of things. They both get to an intersection where there's a platypus. One looks at it and says, not a chicken, not a duck, probably a rock, and goes and hits it. The other one looks at it and goes, similar to a chicken and hits it because of the different life experiences and the different kinds of examples that it's seen along the way. Those are two robots that made an independent decision based on its early programming. So it's fair to say that at certain times, the robot can act independently of the earliest programming that it received. Yes? So can he, can he go to jail? Can who go to jail? The, I mean, the, the robot? 100% he, he can, yes. He can be, he That's can right. serve five years? Yes. And, and we, again, we're not going to have time to hit I everything. Let me mention time again. He can order kosher food, um, but the, the jail, that's a case called Hobby Lobby. Yes, he can order kosher food. Corporations and therefore robots can't order kosher food. In terms of the robot being put in jail, we don't have time to get into everything. I'll just very briefly answer because it's an important question, right? How do you punish a robot? The answer is there are multiple legal reasons why you punish people or incarcerate people. Is it to reform them? If so, of course a robot can be jailed because you just reprogram it and it's reformed. Is it to somehow deter them from doing the action? Well, if you turn them off, you can certainly deter them. Corporations have been put in jail. What is the point of the putting the corporation in jail? They don't want anybody to deal with it. So they put a chain around the corporate headquarters. This is a true story from New York. And they consider that to be in jail. So any rationale you come up with in terms of robots being punished, you can certainly find an analogous way. In fact, in some instances, they can do community service. So in San Francisco, they have robots that serve as um, guards and buildings at night. And so if a robot does something wrong, you can repunish it, you can reprogram it, and therefore fix it, deter it, etc. And it can also give back to the community by serving in a uh, public instance. So, so it can get insurance from Geico to, to drive? Great question. Yes. Not yet, but we, I've actually worked with a couple of insurance companies because, again, we're not going to have time to cover all this. If you go back to ancient Rome, the idea of the slave was a sort of quasi-person that, that could commit torts, but it could indemnify its owner because it carried its own insurance policy. 
policy. So it is very conceivable in the near future that driverless cars will carry their own insurance policy so as to indemnify the owner or the programmer, depending on how you look at the chain of reaction, uh, if it gets into an accident. So yes? But then they have to make money in order to pay for their insurance. They can, because they can go in Uber by themselves if they want to. So they can certainly make it back easily. Yeah, 100%. All very important questions that are, uh, that are coming up in real time. OK. We have to, I don't want to keep you late, so we have to speed up a little bit so we can even get to the Jewish stuff. Short summary so far. If they can be agents, they can make contracts. If they can make contracts, then they can sue and be sued. So now you have legal personhood. We're not that far away in America. Now, if they can deceive, as they certainly can, uh, and if you have time, you can just go on YouTube and find out for yourself, they can commit intentional and unintentional torts. And we said that they can intend. If they commit intentional torts, that they can intend to deceive, they can also be criminally liable and go to jail and be punished and all of those things. Now. The title of this talk was Robots in Love, I believe, so I wanted to make sure to get to this. If they can intend for bad, to trick people, to be criminal level, why can't they also intend to be good and to fall in love? As gross as it may sound, um, the love industry is actually what drives a lot of robotics in the United States. Fact. Um, a lot of people are interested in marrying robots. Um, legally, can you do it? Say, let's take a step back out of the robot world. It's just an easier, non-controversial one. What about a corporation, right? We know that they're artificial people. They're both artificial people. Could you marry a corporation? Our starting point then is less controversial. Can you marry a corporation? The answer is, why not? According to the Supreme Court, the nature of marriage is that, through its enduring bond, two persons, does it say humans? It does not. Two persons together can find other freedoms, such as expression, intimacy, and spirituality. This is true for all persons. Now, the next line is whatever their sexual orientation. But go back to Rosalind Hursthaus, Hillary Putnam. Why shouldn't it also be whatever their makeup? The 14th Amendment, the inhibition of the amendment that no state shall deprive any person within its jurisdiction of the equal protection of the laws was designed to prevent any person or class of persons from being singled out as a special subject for discriminating and hostile legislation. Under the designation of person, there's no doubt that a private corporation is included. In July 26, 2012, Kings County, Seattle, Washington, Angela Marie Vogel became the first woman in America to legally marry a corporation. So it's not a... Who did she marry? Who did she marry? She married corporate person. And again, if you want a video of their wedding, it is there. It was a stunt after the case uh, Citizens United to protest the idea of corporate personhood. Now, the marriage was short-lived. Okay? When they went to get their marriage license, the poor clerk didn't do research, and he was so embarrassed when the news stories came out, they voided the marriage. Why do you think it was voided? No, unfortunately not. Age, because the corporation was, was only two weeks old. And they said, <laughs> But, but what she said was, okay, I'll wait 18 years and I'll do it again. Because if that's the only reason you're going to avoid it, that shouldn't be a problem. They didn't avoid it on the other grounds. Now, let me ask you a question. Okay, so we talked about the idea that in theory, it is not far-fetched. As much as crazy as it sounds, there to be robotic persons. I didn't say robotic humans. Robotic persons that have rights under the law that in theory could enter into all kinds of law, including and not limited to family law. And in theory, you could. People already do fall in love with the robot. Anyone here see that movie, uh, Her? Her, yeah. Her, there's like 800 movies about it now. Um, Ex Machina, all of these movies about people falling in love with robots because it happens. And yes, in theory, you could one day marry a robot. Okay, what about Jewish law? And before I begin, I want to give a couple of, of caveats to the talk, which is that if you run through halacha, you find all kinds of interesting mythical creatures, ranging from the golem to Bigfoot. And whether or not the creatures did exist or could exist, whatever it might be, 
um, the point doesn't really matter to me because as an attorney, I'm more concerned with not whether or not these were fact or fiction, but as halachic Jewish law constructs, right? Chazal, the rabbis of the Talmud, uh, were not scientists. And when they were faced with a question that they often received from scientists, they approached it in the following manner. We've been told by the scientists of our day that X exists. If there is such a creature, what would the halacha be? And that's how a Jewish law approach tackles these questions. And we're quite lucky they did this because more and more these days we're finding relevancy in discussions that until now seemed very, very obscure. So Eliyahu Hanavi's flying chariot is the basis for a large discussion of halachot about airplanes. And Tosot about a sheep giving birth to a cow is the prototype for discussions about cloning and surrogate motherhood. So again, in modern terminology, you call the rabbis legal theorists. And what legal theorists do is they establish first principles, legal principles and they build upon them. And just so you know, even in modern American law, now that we're entering into these new fields, we often do like to turn back to other, not just Jewish law, but other kinds of law that have thought deep and hard about a lot of these questions. And so when we try to discuss the question of artificial intelligence in Jewish law, the first question you have to establish is what makes something alive in Jewish law? And then more importantly, what makes something human? I told you we'd come back to the golem. So this is the first written story of the golem we find outside of Jewish lore. The Polish Jews, it's from Jacob Grimm, Grimm's Fairy Tales, and his literary and folklore journal, the Journal for Hermits. The Polish Jews, after speaking certain prayers, observing certain fast days, made the figure of a man out of clay or loam. And when they speak, the miracle-working Shem HaMeforash, the ineffable name of God, the figure comes alive. It's true that he cannot speak, but he understands reasonably well what anyone says to him and commands him to do. They call him Golem, and they use him as a servant to do all sorts of housework, but he may never leave the house alone. On his forehead is written, MS, truth or God. However, he increases in size daily, easily becomes larger and stronger than all of his housemates, regardless of how small he was at first. Anyone here ever see the Disney, The Sorcerer's Apprentice, where the it goes out of whack and keeps on doing things. That's the story of the golem, is the original story of this. Therefore, fearing him, they rub out the first letter, so nothing remains of the word MS but the word mace, which means dead, whereupon he collapses and is dissolved again into clay. But once, out of carelessness, someone allowed their golem to become so tall he could no longer reach his forehead. Out of fear, the master ordered the servant to take off his boots, thinking that he would bend down, then the master could reach his forehead. This is what happened, and the first letter was successfully erased, but the whole load of clay fell on the Jew and crushed him. Anyone know where the golem story, where the golem lived? Prague. Prague. What's interesting about that? Um, anyone ever been to Prague, to the Alt Shoal? Okay. Anyone ever there for Shabbos? There's a minhag in that shoal, which is the only shoal in the world that has this minhag. And the minhag is, they say, Mizmer Shir twice on Friday night. No other show in the world does this. The legend is that it happened on this Shabbos, which is that one day the Maharal forgot to shut his golem off for Shabbos. And so it was tearing apart the town. And he ran out of Shoal and killed the golem. He caught up the olive made into the word mace, and he ran back to Shoal. And he wanted everyone to know that he had done it before Shabbos started. So he said to the Chazan, one more time, Ms. Morshir. And he took in Shabbos again, and everyone knew that it was not Shabbos. That's the only Shoal in the world that has that minute. But what's more interesting about the fact that it's in Prague, a lot of people question, again, the authenticity of the Maharal legends, but they definitely have impacted the way we think in the modern world about artificial people. The word robot, anyone know where that comes from? 
the Czech word robata, which means serf labor, and figuratively means drudgery or hard work. And it is invented by the Czech novelist Karol Kapek in his 1929 play, R.U.R., Rossum's Universal Robots. Kapek grew up in Prague the same town of the Mahara. And he was, of course, very well acquainted with the legend of the golem when he invented the idea of the robot. But Prague is not where the story of the robot begins. The robot begins on the very beginning of creation. Right? Adam Harishon, Adam, is talking to God. And he says, Galmi ura'u Your eyes saw my unformed sustenance. When I was a golem, he says, you saw me. And in my book, everything was written. Okay, the rabbis take this as a reference to Adam on the very first morning of his creation in Sanhedrin. The Gemara explains the day consisted of 12 hours. In the first hour, Adam's dust was gathered. In the second, Naaseg Golem. He was turned into a golem. In the third, his limbs were shaped. In the fourth, a soul was infused into him. In the fifth, he arose and stood on his feet. In the sixth, he gave the animals their names. In the seventh, Eve became his mate. In the eighth, they ascended to bed as two and descended as four, Cain and Hevel. In the ninth, he was commanded not to eat of the tree. In the tenth, he sinned. In the eleventh, he was tried. And in the twelfth hour, he was expelled from me. A long day. But what do you see from there? You see that at the end of the day, Adam begins his existence as a golem, which means that one of two things will become very relevant for us. Either a golem itself has the potential to cross over and become a living thing, right? So again, if Pinocchio becomes a real boy, that's the halachic construct. Or Adam Harishon was never halachically alive. Or at the very least, Adam Harishon might never have been halachically human, because again, there has to be a definition for humanity. And one of the things that you always see throughout uh, the literature and the Jewish literature is this idea of Yelud Isha. The verse in Eov says, Yelud Isha, man that is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. Okay? And the Gemara in Yuma says the same thing, that in fact the definition of humanity is someone who is born of woman. In that instance, Adam Harishon is certainly not human because he doesn't have a mother. So, so far, by both of our definitions, what it takes to be a person, Adam Arishon is not a human being, and in fact, neither is Chava. Okay, interesting. Um, the first person to really codify this notion was the Chacham Tzvi, Tzvi Hirsch Ben Yaakov Ashkenazi in the late 17th, early 18th century. But before we get to his understanding and why it's so important, we should meet the next golem in Jewish literature, which is the golem of Sanhedrin uh, and Rava, 65b. Okay? Rava bara gavra. Rava created a man. Shadre the kameh Rabbi Zera, he sent him to Rabbi Zera. Rabbi Zera was talking to him. But he wasn't answering him. When he saw he wasn't answering, he said, Ah, min at, you are either from magicians or from my friends, return to your dust, and he killed him. He made the golem go away and no longer exist. Now, let's talk about the Chacham Tzvi. The Chacham Tzvi lives again in the 16th, early 1700s, and he's wondering about the criteria of this halachic man. And there's an important historical point here, which is all the legends of the Maharal actually have an earlier source in Jewish lore. Anyone know where it's from? Eliyahu Baal Shem of Chelm. 
Right? Most of the Maharal stories we have were first told by a different rabbi, Eliyahu Baal Shem of Chelm, who died in 1583. He is the grandfather of the Chacham Tzvi. And so the Chacham Tzvi, who's writing this, is not talking about an abstract Gemara. He's saying, oh, bless you, Zaidi made a golem. I wonder what is the halachic criteria for my grandfather's golem. The tradition when his family was that his grandfather, bless you, made a golem, and he took that very seriously, bless you. So he starts looking for first principles in this story, and he comes out with a few different things. First, he says, perhaps idiosyncratic, he says a golem can't count in a minion. How do you know that? How do you know from this story that a golem can't count? Sorry? A mute person can count in a minion. Good. It would be Baltashkas. He says, you, obviously, it's not a minion because it would be Baltashkas, the uh, Isser, uh, forbidden to waste something. So you, he wouldn't have wasted a good minion man. So That's the better part. Great. And more importantly, Shofechdam Ha'adam Ba'adam the Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. It must have been that this wasn't murder. Right? Rabbi Zera would never commit murder. And so it must be that it's not murder. Why? Because it has to be someone who was born Ba'adam, similar to the Yalud Isha. It has to come from a woman in order to be considered. Sorry? We'll get there in a second. Can it be Jewish? Right now we're just trying to see if it can be a person. Okay? Good. Now, amongst various halachic decisors, the Pardes Rimonim, the Chesed Shalavram, the Mayan the Mayan Ravi, they all agree that killing a golem is not murder, and therefore we must have what Rosalind Hursthouse would call a speciesist definition, which is definition of humanity is that, yeah, it has to be born from human. Now, the Shut Shuva Me'ava makes a very, very important statement, which is that uh, once we give something the status of a human, it can never lose it. So if a baby is born with any kind of abnormalities or deficiencies, it's 100% human. And similarly, the Chazon Ish writes that miscarried fetuses, once they have attained humanity for purposes of burial and mourning, they're all considered to be human. In fact, in the early Rishonim, not the early Rishonim, the late Rishonim, they refer to the status of an unborn child as a golem. And that's what it means, is a fetus before it's born. Okay. The Chida agrees as well that when you make someone, someone who has human lineage is human. And so we have our first conclusion, which says, Adam Harishon, according to all these accepted halachic authorities, is not, not only is he not Jewish, he's not a human being. Okay? He's just not. Which means that we are all descended from golems. Just an important thing. And the Razina Rebbe in his uh, book, Sidre Tarot, on Ahalot, actually makes this point. We are all descended from golems. So if you ever get, feel good about yourself, turns out you were descended from a golem. Great. We are all somewhat AI. All right, now. Well, not all of us with the eye. Well, here's an important thing, though. It, this can't be right. <laughs> this, can't be, this can't be right, and I'll tell you why it can't be right. How many of you saw the movie AI by Steven Spielberg? Anyone? Remember the scene where they were killing robots? AI is a story about robots that look very much like humans. This cannot be the basic halakhi definition of humanity, because halakha cannot exist in a cloud. And what if you're introduced to a creature that, for all intents and purposes, looks and acts human, but it doesn't happen to have biologically uh, human parentage? Now, we're not there yet, but we're actually not too far away. Well, not necessarily a clone, depending on where it's born, but, but someone who's born completely in vitro. Okay, and we're not there yet, but we're close. Completely in an incubator, so you couldn't say of it that it was Yelud Isha, that a, a woman had given birth to it. Are you going to tell them that they're not a human start being? With, you, start with, you start with genetics of humans. Genetics is not Yelud Isha. We know that from. Starting with 
Sure. Let's assume you start with uh, an egg and sperm from a human being. Yulud Isha, in the technological definition, is actually born from a woman. Correct. So C-section. So C-section isn't necessarily a, the problem. The halachic definitions come back to various other categories in Yuladisha, and that comes up in terms of surrogate motherhood as well. There's a massive debate halachic about the status. But let's assume for a second that it was, was purely a non-Yuladisha. And again, at, at the end of the day, I remember this the, a couple of years ago for the first time, they created sperm cells out of skin cells. So you can have a baby that has no actual father at all. So assume for a second that you have this thing, but it looks human, it acts human, and it's in your child's class. Would you teach your child that you can kill this person because they're not a person and Rabbi Zera killed a golem? It can't be that way. And so halacha has developed, thankfully, other ways of defining humanity, an alternative definition. And I'm going to argue, I'm not going to say that Yulad Isha is a bad definition because generally halacha says Yulad Isha is a human being. But there are also other definitions. One of them comes from the Gemara Yushami and Mesechet Nida. Okay? I'll read it to you in English. Rabbi Yasa says, in the name of Rabbi Yochanan, if a creature has a human body, but its face is the face of an animal, he's describing some sort of a centaur, it's not human. If a creature has an animal body, but its face is human, it is human. And it seems like we're looking for human features. If it looks human, it must be human. But the Gemara continues, says that can't be the exact definition. Gemara says, suppose it is entirely human, but its face is animal-like, and it's studying Jewish law. Meaning it has animal, it looks like an animal, but it's learning halacha. And this is not really about Jewish law. It could be doing differential equations. It's doing something that requires some kind of cognitive intelligence and is acting human. Could one say to it, come and be slaughtered? Of course not. That seems inhuman. That's our AI problem. We can't kill somebody because they happen not to look human. Or consider if it's entirely animal-like, but its face is human. It has human features, but it's plowing the field. It's acting like an animal. Do we come and say to it, come and perform leveret marriage and divorce? Come get an aliyah? No, of course not. It's an animal. And so the Talmudic conclusion is the following. When you're dealing with a creature that doesn't conform to the simple definition of humanness, born from a human mother, but it looks human and it's doing human things, not just Jewish law things, it's doing human things, then context determines if it's human. Does it study Jewish law? Or, again, does it do differential equations? Does it perform higher cognitive functions? Or is it pulling at the end of a plow? And so when we can't apply the biological definition of a human, we apply the contextual definition of a human, which means that a genetically engineered person, even if they're fully incubated, would be human, because it has both human attributes and human intellectual capability. So our in vitro artificial incubator baby is now human again. But it also means the following that any other creature who can effectively communicate, blend in, and interact inconspicuously with humans would be considered people by halacha. Very similar to whose test? Anyone? Turing. Alan Turing's test. So you can refer to this as the Turing plus test because there's other definitions. We don't have time to go into it now. We're running out of time. I don't want to keep you too late. We only have like three more minutes. But the idea of Tselem Elohim comes up all the time throughout literature. And in fact, we're told that people are created in the image of God. We know that God has... What does it mean? And so the Maharal of Prague, incredibly enough, the same Maharal of Prague who famously built the golem, writes this. The interpretation is not that God possesses an image of form. This is not the case at all. It informs us that when it comes to allude to what exists of God in a physical figure, it will illustrate a standing figure. Although certainly one cannot ascribe any figure to God, nevertheless, what exists of God is illustrated through the physical man, which means that he's looking for in humanity a physical test. So if something has to look human and act human, then it might be. So it's a Turing plus test. Turing was only concerned about the acting and tricking. Here we have something that has to 
look human. So for the Maharal and for others, even though God has no body, you can speak of a physical correspondence between man and his creator. Okay, let's go back for a second now to, oh, one more thing we should talk about. Others have wanted to classify speech as the definition, a possible halachic criteria for humanity. Dea vidibor, right? Rashi says over here, Right, Ruchmalav, someone that speaks. Rashi famously says, Rashi has become like one of us, having the ability to speak. He doesn't say not just speak, but what is its uniqueness? Ladas Tovarai. It's a linked concept. It's not just the ability to speak, Rashi says, it's Dea Vidibor, knowing good and evil and being able to effectively communicate something moral, good and evil. Okay. Rambam and Moranavuchim seems to hold the same way, that that is unique because human beings are singular that they know, uh, they know good and evil. Okay, now again, speech itself as the elected criteria for humanity is impossible because you know that people who can't speak are in fact humans. And the Gemara also tells us that there are some animals that can speak. Gorillas, for instance, certain types of, uh, of great apes can develop the ability to speak up to the level of a six-year-old child. There's a Gemara famously about Rav Ilish talking to birds, and you think this is crazy. Google Alex the African Gray Parrot who's considered the Einstein of birds. He was able to hold a conversation. He was able to recognize himself. Uh, very fascinating thing. And Stephen Wise from Harvard wrote a book called um, Rattling the Cage about these parrots. Right? These pa- Alex, who is Alex the African Grey Parrot. Unbelievable. It'll blow your mind. A bird able to talk. So it can't be speech. No one thinks that it's just speech. But speech combined with its Kim, combined with acting human, now you seem to have the definition emerging halakhically of how to look contextually. Now let's take a look back very quickly at that story in, about Rava. Rava creates this man, sends him to Rabbi Zera. What happens? He looks human. He acts human, but he can't speak. How does Rabbi Zera know that it's not a human? He spoke to him, but he received no answer. And so it seems to me we've come again to the test that Rabbi Zera was using. Yes, you look human and you're acting human, but you can't speak. You can't effectively morally communicate. And then, in fact, you are not human. So this Turing plus test does seem to be the way that Halakha considers uh, in the alternative. Okay, now, are robots there? The answer is yes. Looking human is very, very easy. If you, again, if you go on, you can look at some of the robots from China, in particular, and Japan, who look and act human. They have thousands and thousands of facial muscles, muscles, and you can interact with them as you would a human being. And in fact, some companies have now started hiring AI computer systems where they film a, a person talking, and then the person can say anything, and they can be their sort of interface. If you go rent a car at some airport, you talk to an interface that you think you're talking to a person, it's a robot. Okay, so the idea is it certainly can look human and it can act human without being human. Now, is it possible, does the Gemara ever, have you ever, ever have an instance where you've expanded the concept and said that something that was not Yelodisha is considered a human being? Because otherwise it would be kind of, you know, hard to say. The answer is, actually we do. Within our well-accepted tradition, we do have ideas that, at least in some instances, the Talmud did extend the concept of humanity outside of what we would normally consider humanity. One of them is from a Mishnah in Kalayim. I don't have time, I'll just tell you about it. The Mishnah in Kalayim has a debate about the status of a certain creature mentioned in Tanakh called the Adnei Hasada. Anyone ever hear of that? The Adnei Hasada literally means the men of the field. The Jerusalem Talmud calls him Barnash de Tor, a mountain man. The Tanakama, the first rabbi in the Mishnah, says they're considered chayot. They're considered wild animals in regards to crossbreeding. Rabbi Yossi says, nope, they have human features, and thus they can render impurity like a human being. Now, they come up in Eov, in Eov 523. Rashi says, in Evan Hasada, what is it? It has the form of a man, but it's really an animal. 
Other Rishonim say it's hairy, it has long arms and a very large build, and it tends to stay on the outskirts of civilization. You can't get too close to it. It seems to be describing a Yeti, right, or a, a Bigfoot. But Rambam in the Mishnah and Kalayim actually says something fascinating. He says their speech is similar to humans, but it's unintelligible. And he uses an Aramaic term to describe them, al-nas-nas. You know what that means? Guess. It means a monkey. Isn't that interesting? Rambam says this half-human is a monkey. And then the Teferi Yisrael, who's a couple generations later, writes that he actually got to see one of these Adne Asada. It was in a zoo in Egypt. And we know what it was. It was an orangutan. Okay, so the idea, again, the Rashmi Shant, Ravadi Bartnura, both suggest that according to Rabbi Yossi, this creature, this orangutan, is a human being. If you're anyway interested, right here in Emory, we have the Bonobo Labs, where uh, they actually have animals that can talk, uh, not with, with sign language. So again, the Talmud Yerushalmi translates Adne Asada as a Bar Nashtator, a mountain man, and halachic criteria, the Rambam, among others, explain that this is partially human. So the idea of a non-Yulud Isha being human because it looks and acts like a person is in fact well-versed in our thing. Yes? So, so Rash Mishant and Ravadi Bartanura both say that according to Rabbi Yossi, what Rabbi Yossi is saying. Is he arguing only on one thing or not? It's a whole sugi in the Rishami. Some say that his question is only about certain aspects. Some say he has certain human qualities for everything. Okay. Uh, Yes. Again, there's a lot more basis to say this about certain great apes and bonobos who are even genetically very close to human beings. So let's take it back to our golem for a second. We left our hero, the golem, with the Chacham Tzvi, who said that a golem can't be counted in a minion, and it's not murder. And the question is, what if the golem could talk? What if Rava had finished the job, and the golem was able to talk, and had said, yes, would he have counted in a minion? What if he had been able to communicate? And the Chacham Tzvi's own son, very famous, Rav Yaakov Emdin, says in Shut Shalat Yavetz, 282. You can look it up yourself. He says the reason the golem couldn't count in the minion because it was not intelligent, which implies, again, if it was intelligent, if it could talk and communicate David Debor, had he been able to speak and fit our second category of humanity, looks human, contextually displays humanity, ability to talk to Vera, he would in fact be human and count in a minion. In fact, the Razina Rebbe, again, Rav Gershon Chanuch Lehner in Sidre Tarot, agrees and says this golem would be human. Okay, so again, in certain things, in vitro fertilization and cloning, both of them are really halakhic people can consider it Yilod Isha because they have genetics. But the idea of this golem, right? What is a golem? A golem is a man made out of clay, designed by human beings, imbued with an imitative form of life by means of a secret mystical combination of letters. That's a golem, right? What's a robot? It's a man made out of metal, designed by human beings, imbued with an imitative form of life by means of complex orderly combinations of numbers. They're very, very much the same thing. Both are not born from man, so both don't fall under Yilod Isha definition one. But assuming artificial intelligence is good enough to let it pass for human, then according to definition number two, the robot would be human. Could a robot be Jewish? The answer is very possibly. Again, you say, well, how does a robot get a bris milah? Well, the answer is half of Jews don't have a bris milah. They're considered nolad mahal. They're born with a bris milah, the Gemara says, about women. So you would imagine that a robot wouldn't require a bris milah. What do you mean? People need a heart. What's the difference with it runs the battery? What source, what, what's renewable yeah, source of self-generating form of energy would it have? Why does it need that? Because then, in terms of murder, I mean, all you have to do is deprive it of the... You have to plug itself in every night, the same way that a person who has certain kinds of energy has to plug themselves into a uh, dialysis machine. 
There's no requirement that a person has to have an external source of life. A robot can die, sure. You can destroy it. But I mean, does it have like an 80-year lifespan and does it pass away? There's no, there's no requirement in halacha that a person has to have a lifespan in order to be considered human. I'll take all the questions. I want to end off with one point, which is important, which is that if you take a step back from halacha, from a Jewish ethics perspective, this makes a lot of sense. Uh, in general, under Jewish law, ethics are very much about the thing you're acting on and not the actor itself. So, for example, a classic example um, from the story of Pesach, right? When it comes time to hit the Nile with his staff, Moshe Rabbeinu says, I don't want to hit the Nile and turn it into blood because the Nile saved me, right? The Nile doesn't know if Moshe is hitting it with his staff, right? But Moshe, the actor, feels a sense of ethical obligation, not, or more easier Friday night. Every Friday night we make Kiddush on wine and we cover the challah. Why do we cover the challah? Not to embarrass. It doesn't know, and in fact, you're going to do something a lot more embarrassing to it in a few minutes, right? If you're really going to think about it. But why do we do this? Because we need to inculcate in ourselves an ethic of gratitude and respect. Okay, so you might ask yourself, inevitably, let's assume, if the robot is technically, halachically a person, why do I need to treat with respect? Maybe it doesn't know deep down. The answer is I don't care if it knows or doesn't know. I have an ethical obligation. If I see something that looks human and acts human and for all intents and purposes is human, I can't say, well, I'm just going to stab it to see if it bleeds blood or oil. I have an ethical obligation from a Jewish law perspective as the actor, like Moshe not hitting the Nile, even though it didn't know, like us covering the chal, even though there's no, to treat this thing as if it was a, um, a person. And I'll st- uh, one more thing that I'll add, because we're running out of time already. People assume the golem was made using Kabbalah, right? That's the natural assumption. It was sort of a mystical, magical thing. That's not necessarily true. The Pardes Rimonim, who's a medieval Kabbalist, he assumes there was no magic involved, and that Rava's golem was a scientific experiment. Okay, he actually created a robot. And there's a variety of interesting chuvot about what exactly that means. Mechanical robots, Egyptians had certain early mechanical robots. He assumed there was no magic involved, and any person like Rava could create a robot if they had the mechanics involved. Okay, yes. we're out of time. Sorry? No Yosef uh, Sheda or any of that. Not necessary. Not in that story. There's no Sheda in that story. Okay, uh, we have. I'd, That's all the story we have. And he killed him, which means that he wasn't murdered. And had the, again, the, the Rav Yaakov Emden, the last sort of word on this is, if he could speak, then it probably would have been a different story. Because he would, that's just all, all not, everybody, not everybody that can't speak is not human. No, he said anyone who's ready falls under definition one and can speak is obviously human. Right, Yodisha is an obvious definition. The question is, when it's not Yodisha and you develop something else, what's the contextual test? And one of the contextual tests is speech, not just speech, but the last day of a Dibur. Yes, that's the Chazanisha. Me, of course, 100 percent. Would have to be able to intelligently communicate, good or bad. Yes. What interacting today with a agent of a corporation? conversation and having misrepresentation or something that was illegally done, is the is the robot responsible or is the corporation responsible? It depends. So like question. Who, where is this responsibility? Who's responsible for the action? It, de- it depends on the breakdown. It depends what happened. Right? If it was uh, bad programming, then the programmer is responsible. If it was a bad input decision, then in theory the robot might be responsible. If it was a bad corporate policy, then the person would It depends where in the breakdown of the chain it happened. Yeah? Are you implementing that soon we're going to have robots running it? No, not, not soon. First of all... They'll wake up on time. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm not, I'm not saying soon, but I'm saying I could imagine, I could imagine within 100 or 200 years. So does the, does the robot age, like, so you marry a robot and you age, but the robot looks the same? You ever see the show Bewitched? Have you, have you seen the show Bewitched? Samantha doesn't age, but Darren does. Yes? Um, saying in a rerun, she doesn't age or even then. Science fiction always defined same way he does conscience, intentionality. If it looks predictably, I can say, based on what it did before, it's going to do this, then it has the same sort of intentional stance that Daniel Dennett described. Yes? So when, the, when the robots burn, like you gave me an example before, uh -huh. do they learn feelings? There are robots that claim they have feelings. Now, what does that mean they claim? They say they have feelings, and they act in a way that a person with feelings would act. Do they actually? Who knows? But do... Let's talk about family law for a second. Family law. As irrational as human beings, that's when they have feelings. Let's talk about what the law cares about. Is marriage about love? No, it's not. Right? Marriage is about a very specific set of actions that people can take, and they're married. It doesn't even require a consummation, right? It doesn't have to require any feelings whatsoever. If people act in a certain way, the way that married people act, then they're considered married. The law doesn't care if it has feelings, it cares if it manifests certain actions that count legally to change the status. Yes? But I, Sorry. In any instant, if it acts in a way that manifests intentionality, then the law says, okay, I can't get into your head either. Maybe you're lying about how you feel. Well, the, but that, isn't that like a problem? So the short, here's the truth. It's an ethical problem, but not a legal problem. The law has to solve this problem because people have to either go to jail or not go to jail, have to pay money or not pay money. So for the legal intents and purposes, right, which is why personhood is a legal concept, the answer is intentionality. Yes. Be a specific gender and a specific age. Mm -hmm. How does a robot gain gender and age? Great question. So there's halachic definitions of what counts for gender, in the same way they have a tumtum or an androgynous. Some of them would count in a minion, and halachic can define what that is. Halachic can, in theory, define that there's a male robot and a female robot. If you want to talk about the ability to procreate, there are robots that can procreate. What does procreate mean in the sense of a robot? There are robots that can build other robots in their likeness. And so there are definitions for that that would fall under male versus female in terms of halachic criteria for, for a gender as well. Possibly, yeah. Same way, exact same way that the corporation was voided on age. So you'd have to, no, it might have to exist for 13 years. Why? For the theory, to develop the same kind of, again, why does the... It will have to be an obsolete robot that counts for a minute, yes. Because halacha might require age for certain things. What about the, the basic difference? Where does flesh and blood... Where does it come up in halacha? No. Until you pulled off the thing. Who said the golem had flesh and blood? Maybe not. The, the, the stories. The stories made of clay. That he, that he looked, acted. He looked, acted, and birth. seemed like he had it, but if you, so if you took him off, they used to scratch out the olive on his head. And then he would revert to clay. No, he would revert to dead. So he was always There's clay. a medrash I'll share with you. This will we'll end with this, yes. This is, will answer your question, and it's an important thing to end with. There's a medrash about Yirmiyahu Anavi. And in the medrash, Yirmiyahu Anavi uh, is crying. No, Yirmiyahu Anavi, I'm sorry, sees a malach that's crying. Yirmiyahu had created a golem, and this Malach is crying, and he says, why are you crying? And he says, you created a man, and now people are going to go and say there are two gods. There's Yirmiyahu the god, and there's God the god. And Yirmiyahu says, ah, oh, you're right, I'm sorry. And he scratches the name Aleph off, and is left with mace, and the golem dies, and he says, no more golems. Which tells you that Klape Mala in heaven, this thing was no different, in fact, than a golem. Now, there's a continuation of that Gemara, which says, 
if not for our sins, we could all be creators. What does that mean? It means that if not for our sins, perhaps we could all be like Rava and create a person. What does it mean if not for our sins? Our sins interpose in our ability to create a pure um, nishama, forever might be a pure conscious, so we can't do it. So what, hap- what does it look like to have a pure transmission? It might look like a sterile room where they create chips, where there's literally, there's no sin involved because there's no person involved. And so in theory, maybe perhaps the way to create without parting impurity is in fact those Intel commercials where everybody's wearing suits and there's no actual one person involved imputing any kind of sin. And that's how you can create a new artificial person that Yirmiyahu might consider to be uh, possibly uh, scary in terms of Bodhisattva. Yeah, immaculate development, exactly. Okay, uh, I don't want to take any more time. I will stay around and ask, answer any questions that people have. Can they sense other people's feelings? Like, would they ever say, I'm yes, sorry? Yes, they can respond to feelings. Feeling? In fact, there are caretaker robots that were developed in Japan, now in America. They use them in old age homes, and they give people their medicines, and they respond to their feelings. They can test them, yes, 100%. Thank you very much, Rabbi Goldfeder. Fascinating stuff. We said this would be cutting edge. Incredible. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you. Why not?